Hello, and welcome to a very important and hard-hitting episode of The Apostrophone, a podcast of the Wall Street Journal that records on Fridays. Today, we are joined by Lindsay Herman. Lindsay, how are you? I'm hanging in there. How are you? I'm pretty good, all things considered. Um, you know, the sun is shining, and it's been uh, an invigorating morning filled with, filled with delightful company. Um, an adventure. An adventure, and promises to continue. Um, so for just some, some very brief framing before we, uh, get, get on the trajectory of the conversation here, um, Lindsay, you are a, uh, food scientist by training, but also a noted ceramicist, um, in my mind and in your mind, but also, you know, on, on, in the, uh, physical reality and on Instagram. And as I was Googling around some type of um, it seems like pottery only Instagram application, uh, that I can't remember what it was called, but, um, uh, it seemed very well received. But then on top of that, you are a, uh, musician formerly of the magnetic fields. Sort um, of. I mean, it's more like a hanger on slash best friend who was sometimes allowed to play tiny little symbols on records. That's even better. I mean, you you can <laughs> see in the behind the music or the the almost famous type uh, uh, like rendering how you're going to be a point of view character. <laughs> exactly. I'm like the person in the background who didn't get edited out. And so everybody wonders 30 years later, who is that person? I used to be in their PR photos too. And it would always, it would run in papers, you know, weeklies, those free weeklies, and it would identify all the band members and I would be unidentified. <laughs> um, like it would list you as unidentified. It would be like the caption or you just would not be. No, it would say like unidentified person or something. It would, it would, they had no idea because the band just thought it was funny. Um, so any other uh, kind of high-level uh, disciplines of accomplishment that we should list out here? Oh, yes. So I think 20 years ago, I appeared on Alton Brown's Good Eats in his second season. I played a cheesemonger, which at the time I was. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I thought you were leading to at the time I was. A so cheesemonger. So, but, but you were a cheesemonger, right? Yeah, That's, I was a um, cheesemonger. Yeah, my reflexive uh, training to response to vocabulary has not adjusted to being in the world of cheesemongers yet. <laughs> um, so yeah. I want to talk about all these things, but I kind of want to start with the overarching premise of, um, like, when you think of yourself, like, what do you think of yourself as? Do you think of yourself as a, as a chemist or as a like writer, like fundamentally, what is the, what is the skill or training within which you use as your point of entree into all these things? I kind of think of myself as a dilettante, jack of all trades, master of none. I'm pretty good at a lot of things, great at not so many things. So uh, at this point in my life, I'm okay with that. I think when I was younger, I really hoped to rise to the level of like true expertise in something. And at this point, I'm just happy if my activities occupy my mind and my time and allow me to make some income. But I mean, there's, there's no small amount of success in what we just talked about. So, I mean, dilettante, um, do you, do you almost mean that you, you sort of have a, a sense of, I know that I am going to be able to at least uh, participate in this in some type of um, like some type of meaningful way. And that gives you a lot of you have confidence in your own versatility that like uh, for um, I don't know, you look at Breaking Bad, right? And it's like Walter White is a drug dealer, but he's really a chemist. Um, And or if you look at, I don't know, the way that anyone would would think about something that, uh, you know, that. a musician still sees the different business dealings that they do as some type of like uh, composing activity that, that they're working through is, is dilettantism. Is that almost like what you would consider your, your discipline? Yeah, maybe this is, this is an interesting way of thinking about it. I, I've never had to put myself in the context of Walter White and I kind of, I mean, that sounds sort of exciting and adventurous, you know, just getting into it with cartels 
mm-hmm. it's it's not as exciting in the world of food science. I, I don't have any duels with fellow food scientists working for other companies with competitive products or anything. And it's actually pretty collegial. Um, but it would be great to have some of that, you know, I, I don't know, terror. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's let's maybe uh, let's maybe track this a little biographically. So, like starting at the beginning, you I presume you were born in a hospital. I definitely was. My parents were really square. So I was born at a time where parents weren't so square, but mine, I like won the square parent lottery, which is fine. They were great parents, very loving, um, but they were not typical of people a little younger than they were. They they kind of missed out on the whole like hippie thing. So where, where did this, um, you know, Square is another word for stable. Where, where did the where did the stability of this upbringing? Uh, take I, I place? love that you use the word stability because square and stable aren't necessarily uh, interchangeable. There, so biographically, my mom was younger. By my uh, my mother was nine years younger than my father, and they met in Boston on Christmas Day at something called the Matzo Ball. And it was a singles party where young Jewish couple or young Jewish people who were unattached could meet each other on Christmas. And my parents met there and were married by April. So, wow. Yeah. My mom was desperate to get out of her parents' house. I hope she never hears this because I'm revealing all these family secrets. Um, yeah, and she did. And she got out of the house and she married my father and uh, they moved out to the suburbs and had one kid, me, had another kid, and then moved to another suburb of Boston. And that's where I grew up. And my parent, my parents kept the house and my mother lives in that house today. So the house that I grew up in from, you know, sometime in the 70s uh, is still the house my mother lives in. And in which suburb of Boston is this? Uh, it's called Sudbury. What's, what? How would you describe Sudbury to a? Uh, no way in, no way out. It's it's a town without a bus, without commuter rail, without any form of transportation. So if you're a young kid in Sudbury, you don't have the luxury of jumping on commuter rail and going into Boston or Cambridge. You depend on your parents to do that. And if your parents aren't willing to do it, you're stuck in Sudbury. Uh, my parents were somewhat willing. They would drive us to Newton, uh, which was within 128, and drop us off at the commuter rail there so we could go, not commuter rail, the D the D train, uh, the green line, so we could go into town and be by ourselves. Because in those days, you could let your kids wander around pretty freely, and nobody would call Child Protective Services on the parent. Things have changed. I mean, so where, where were you at... at- you know, the way you describe that, it makes you sound like at age five, you were like waltzing through the back bay. But at, um, I don't know, either just generally or at different points of um, getting dropped off on the commuter rail and going into Boston, like what was on your slate of activities? Were you like a Newberry Comics kid or like? Oh, what, yeah. What? So what? Wh- Definitely Newberry Comics. That was on my list of places to go to. And in those days, I think there were two stores that existed. One in the Cambridge, uh, was it was just the Cambridge, what was it called? Was it the garage? Yeah. It was the Har- the garage in Harvard Square. And the other one was on Newberry Street. And we would go to the Harvard Square one. So I think we spent a lot of time in Harvard Square. And in high school, most of my friends lived in Cambridge. And so I spent a ton of time there. Um, So, uh, you know, getting to know the punks in the square and hanging out with kids from Cambridge Ridge and Latin seems so cool, so much cooler than, you know, what you'd get out in Sudbury. No offense, Sudbury. Not cool. I mean, there's like no one can come get you because there's just no way. Well, you say that. You yes, exactly. No one could come get you in Sudbury. But if we got stuck in Cambridge when I was in high school, for example, we missed the commuter rail back to the suburbs, and we called up Stephen Merritt from the Magnetic Fields, who drove us back out to the suburbs to drop us off. Wow. Yeah. But Um, at that point, he was in a band called the Zinnias, and. They were playing bars like Chet's Last Call, and my friend who was 15 was the drummer. That's Claudia. So, different so you, time. And you were at this point, like, you were 
practicing symbol playing or like as a, you know, as a adolescent coming of age, like where, where were your interests drawn at this point and how were they sort of, um, you know, being practiced out in the world? Oh, this is fun. Uh, so my thing was filmmaking, filmmaking and music. So those were two things I was really interested in. So I started doing filmmaking in high school because we had a filmmaking program. Um, but I was not very intrinsically motivated. Um, I needed extrinsic motivation. And in high school, I made this huge mistake of doing an independent study in film and never did it. Basically got an F. And like, did you like scramble the night before and try like how pissed were you when, when American Beauty came out and that kid turned in the film of the bag and you're like, oh, I should have done that. No, I never, I never had those thoughts. I wasn't good at thinking like that. You know, that's probably one of the reasons I never went into film is I was never like, oh, I'm so competitive and, you know, I'm going to crush everybody and, and I should be the only one with this awesome idea and, you know, look at me and get out of my way. And I just wasn't that person. Uh, in fact, in college, I also studied filmmaking and where I went to school, it was really interesting because um, our teacher for our second, our first year classes were all around documentary. And our second year, uh, it was all around narrative uh, films and fiction. And they would get filmmakers to teach that class. And so my year, we had the filmmaker Miklos Jancho, who's this famous Hungarian kind of surrealist filmmaker who was well known for these 22 minute long shots that he would practice for three weeks. And in one, you know, it, it was one single take of, you know, stuff going in and out of the frame and cast of thousands and, you know, really epic work that was so hard to follow narratively. And so at the end of that year, oh, and also the class was conducted in French. Um, wow. Okay. Yeah. That was eight hours a week of class in college conducted in French with a translator, um, around filmmaking and we we're all making films. So that was a really interesting slash strange time. Um, and of course half the students made films that kind of imitated his 22 minute tracking shot you know, epic rehearsal, try this technique out as you do when you're can learning. I, can I ask a, uh, like a, a wayfinding question here? Then? Sure. Like, were you, as you were sort of exploring, you know, this discipline and it sounds like sort of understanding that personality wise, it wasn't for you. Were you also, was this just one thing that happened to be your main focus while you're living the life of the young polymath, so to speak? Or was it more of the sense of like, yeah, you know, I work on the film stuff because that's sort of like what I'm latching onto as as a life arc. And outside of that, I'm really just like drinking coffee or bullshitting with my friends. Yeah. So I, let's see if I understand the question. It's sort of like, was that just my interest du jour? And I mean, and I th- sorry, not not exactly. Um, sorry to cut you off. I just no, no, no. Um, I don't want to put words in your mouth. <laughs> Because <laughs> it's so fun to talk about yourself like this. I'm like, oh, I wasn't, didn't know we would get into the weeds on this. Fascinating. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's um, you're you're a you're a member of a club on Rockwell Street, so this is all very apropos of the of the hyper narrow niche focus of of the Wall Street Journal. <laughs> um, the way I'm trying to think about it is that, like, especially at that age, you know, I don't know anywhere from like. 15 to 23 sort of depending on how how a person is like moving through life it can be very easy to just sort of um you know attach yourself to this like certainty of identity of i'm going to be a doctor or i'm going to be this or i'm going to be that and you know sort of um have that count as like that is the legitimate interest you're exploring and then anything else is just like whatever you like to do no, you know, so I like, was clueless, right? I, I never, all I could think was I want to be a filmmaker. And, but at the same time, I didn't have, I didn't envision my life as a filmmaker. I just was like, I aspire to be a filmmaker. And I had no idea what that meant really. Um, but at the same time, um, I was deeply into uh learning Japanese and Japanese history. And I used to spend my summers in Japan and I was really involved, I was involved with the radio station in college and I was a DJ there and I was really into Japanese underground music. And I worked at a interesting fanzine and I would get paid in vinyl. Um, so I still had lots of interests. 
mm-hmm. I just sort of narrowly focused on, and my degree was in visual and environmental studies and East Asian languages and civilizations. So it was film and Japanese, basically. Yeah. So, so the, you actually had a bunch of other interests that upon which like you were making pretty like meaningful headway towards them, but you never felt like they were your main thing type piece. Sort of. I mean, it it was funny. I I really thought I'd become an academic also. I was like, well, if I can't be a filmmaker, I'm going to be an academic and go get a PhD. But that dream was destroyed by my advisor in my junior year who would rip apart my essays and say, you write too simply. You'll, You'll never make it in academia. And, you know, it just turned out he was this incredibly bitter guy who was in over his head and was from a family that had achieved a ton in the field of Japanese language and literature. And he just wasn't living up to his legacy. And so he was just this bitter guy. I knew other people whose um, aspirations were similarly destroyed. And then I heard about, I don't know, 20 years later after that, he became a professor, a fully tenured professor at another university. And a friend of mine had him and described him as one of the greatest professors he ever had. And I think it was because at that point in his life, you know, he's finally settled in. He'd given up this idea of setting the world on fire with a scholarship, and he was just enjoying being an academic he's at this other university. Totally liberated. Yeah. Yeah. He was liberated and, and was well-liked. And I found it shocking because in my era, he had just, just destroyed the academic aspirations of a, a lot of people. So what, what, like, what was your angst, your general angst level? during this period and also your specific angst level around, you know, becoming a filmmaker or anything like that? Was it like tightly held or were you just sort of like, yeah, I'm sure this will be fine. Well, so with filmmaking, I I started to realize I had no clue what I was doing. Never worked in the industry. A number of my classmates had taken time off to like make movies and, um, or go to Hollywood, work for production companies. And, this is also an era where the expectation was you figure it out for yourself. You get the degree and once you're done, goodbye. Uh, So some of my more enterprising slash confident uh, classmates, they ended up going to American Film Institute or going to grad school to study. A number of the women I was in class with became documentary filmmakers and the men became, you know, feature film, uh, directors so really quite quite a divergence anything like anything mainstream that was just like ring a bell yes uh so one of my classmates was darren aronofsky uh who's made black swan and the wrestler and all that yeah and that noah's ark movie yes and the fountain and no and and mother uh yeah so so darren was a classmate Um, so when you like watch a darren aronofsky movie are you sort of like it's darren is, and are you seeing his personality, like the way that Keanu Reeves looks at code in the matrix and sees like the matrix, do you watch a Darren Aronofsky film and you're like, you're seeing just pieces of the person that you yeah. went to school with? Yeah. I mean, we don't change all that much. I, I, I think people like to think that they do, but the, the person who he was, the filmmaker he became, it was, if you look at his college film, supermarket sweep, uh, elements of that i don't know i don't know where it is but i think it won a student academy award um but it and that was produced in in our class um but if you look at that there are a lot of elements of it in in later movies especially pie uh but it's just like a certain feel but you know, when I look back at myself, who I was at that age and who Darren was at that age, he had confidence, he had poise, you know, it's sort of like, I I didn't have what he had. He had that sort of elusive it and I wasn't confident. I was introverted. I didn't know how to deal with people. So I recognized pretty early on after finishing school, like I better figure out what I'm going to do with my life because I'm not going to make it in Hollywood. It will wreck me. So interesting. Yeah. No, I, I, I saw it pretty early on. Um, like, you know, I just, I just wasn't immune to the criticism. Um, and I didn't have the ability to ask people for what I wanted and what I needed. So I, you know, how would I've ever funded anything? Mm -hmm. Um, it was not something I was, I was prepared to do at that point in my life. So 
Yeah, I, I finished school and I had a boyfriend who was in a band. Uh, it was a Boston band called the Swirlies. And they were this um, navel gazing, uh, well, they were called, sh- they were a shoegaze band in Boston. And what does that- shoegaze mean? Ah, so shoegaze uh, is a style of music that was its most famous practitioner is My Bloody Valentine. And they were, I don't know if they still exist, a, a British band or British-American band. Ooh, my phone is ringing. Uh, I thought you were just laying some shoegaze. Yeah, no, nothing that interesting. Actually, effect. if you yeah. go on YouTube and you Google Swirlies and Bell, you'll find a video that I made with another guy um, a zillion years ago for one wow. of their songs. Yeah. Um, that was back when I was still like freelance videoing things and whatnot. Um, so yeah, I didn't do much of anything. I think I had temp jobs and I was just kind of floating around and, and so the, to, to maybe just speak as the narrator here, check in to, you know, be sure that I'm tracking properly is that, um, you'd realize that this kind of all consuming discipline of film was something where, um, you you didn't have the monomaniacal like focus or or the no. capital e enterprising nature to really like um succeed in the way that you would have wanted to succeed i was not a shark yeah and i wasn't going to make it there's just no way you know what, as <laughs> was it weird or, like was the bigger process for you going through this like trying to decouple yourself from the idea of practicing that craft or was it the actual like learning the thing about yourself? Like what was the, what was the bigger piece? What was the subjective experience more like? Yeah. I never doubted my ability to, to be able to make a film. I doubted my ability to deal with people. So, and I think I was right. I mean, looking back at it, there's just no way I wish somebody had, I mean, it wouldn't have worked, but I wish somebody had taken me aside, slapped me and said like, you are not the right person for this field this will not work for you. Um, and, but that didn't happen. And so I had to figure it out for myself. And the same thing happened with my, you know, academic aspirations where I was like, Oh, this isn't going to work either because I don't want to go to grad school. Now I actually went and took the, the G the GREs and I, you know, I was ready to go. And then I was just, no, no, this is not going to happen. So after was, was oh, coming ahead. to understand all this, you know, cause it, it sounds obviously it's always harsh to like learn things about yourself in the sense of like, I'm this person and not, you know, that, that, that actually understanding that, that there's a fork in the road where it's like, there's this kind of person and that kind of person. Um, but it's like, it's also, it's a great thing to like have these hard won lessons about yourself. Did it, did it like feel initially like a defeat and then like a victory later? Or did it feel like a personal victory as soon as you sort of figured it out? Or what, what was that like for you? I don't think it ever felt like a victory. It felt kind of like a disappointment because when, when I really had that realization, it was, you know, after I was trying to figure out how to break in and worked as a PA on a video shoot. And, you know, I'd done that a few times and just thought, this is stupid. If this is how I, oh, I'm now remembering something else, but you know, working as a PA on the video shoot, I was just like, this, this is stupid. I don't want to wrangle wires. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, and then I was offered a job working in a production office of a Hollywood film in New York. And it paid nothing because in those days you were unpaid for everything. And it would have meant leaving my boyfriend and leaving Boston and moving to New York. And I was just not one, not one of those people who was ever in love with the idea of living in New York. And I decided not to do it. And I knew at that point that was the fork in the road that Mm -hmm. my options had just run out. There were no more options for me in that industry. And the funny thing is at the same time, my sister who was in school in New York was a PA with some, uh, with, some well-known filmmakers. Uh, one of her professors in school was a film producer and he was looking for interns and she volunteered. And so she began working on film sets um, and had some really good ends. And then she decided not to pursue the industry uh, either, which years later she was full of regret about. Also, I hope she doesn't hear this either because I don't think she likes me talking about her. Um, 
We'll just we'll just record this and send it back to ourselves. Yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I know this is good. This is like going to analysis. Like, yes, therapist Mike. Thank you for all these <laughs> wonderful questions. Um, well, it's it's interesting because it's like uh, it, this process of um, I don't know. As as a wise person once said, a, a huge part of life is figuring out how not to do things and what you're not supposed to do, and. I always thought of that as like, especially the not supposed to do piece as like, not as a, you know, here are the rules, but as like what you're not supposed to do. And, um, you know, I don't know. I think especially that like, it's, it's very easy to, uh, kind of recount all sort of the successes someone like yourself has had that, you know, you've got Seth Rogen shouting you out on Instagram for your pottery. Oh, if that were only true. But, um, (laughs) but figuring out like, um, I don't know, figuring out how one becomes a, a, a polymath or successful dilettante is it's, it's an interesting kind of journey to go along with you in this day and age. So it's kind of, it's kind of, uh, I don't know. I think it's fun and revealing. So I'd say let's keep going, but I don't want to push in a direction that you don't want to go in. No, no, this is, I mean, this is all kinds of fun. I'm, I love, I love talking about myself. I mean, most people do, right? One of the <laughs> most fun things you can do is just get people telling their stories. And, and it's always helpful if, you know, they've had chance to reflect upon their lives, which I do all the time. So happy to talk about it. If, you know, maybe somebody hears this and thinks like, oh, I'm, I'm that person too. And, I I think it's exciting to do lots and lots of different things. And I think one of the keys to where I am now is the fact that I was never really afraid to take risks um, and throw everything out, which, you know, on the flip side, you could see that as being, uh, I don't know, foolish and um, kind of crazy um, the way people now are much more concerned about how their careers are and you know, getting on the right path in college. And and there was a lot of privilege then because we could be liberal arts majors and still get a career somehow. Um, whereas, but if if you were, if you were to review sort of the, the risk appetite, you know, how much of it would you say that this is, or that it was a, an artifact of, you know, the, the stable upbringing, um, or, an artifact of this is just sort of how my personality is wired or also like a, an after effect of, you know, I actually took a big swing or two big swings, I guess, if you were to take film and academia into, you know, who I might be or what I might want to be. And I swung and I missed both times and the world kept spinning. So, you know, my, my fear of swinging and missing is actually different. Like, I I don't know if there's an alchemy there or how you reflect on like risk appetite or what, but. That's um, a fascinating question because when I think about it, right, you you know, I had this appetite for change and I think part of it was a function of like my unique brain chemistry. I, I was first, I first recognized that I was a depressed person when I was like 11 years old, but I also knew that if I felt depressed, if I did stuff, it wouldn't feel as bad. So if I did art, if I sewed, if I got obsessively into something, I could occupy my brain with something else that took me out of my own head. So part of the appetite for risk was, I don't like how things are going. I need to change direction. You know, part of it, like I'm going to run, I'm conflict averse, blah, 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 try something new with a whole new set of characters. Part of it was, you know, this thing that I'm doing isn't interesting enough for me. It's not keeping me occupied. There's not enough new information to work with here. I have to keep going. Um, it, it was just a combination of you know, dealing with the stuff going on in my head and trying to find meaning in what I did because I couldn't imagine having a life where what I did wasn't meaningful to me in some way. Um and I always threw myself, no matter how boring the job I had was, I would always throw myself into it so I could understand whatever field it was that I was in, even if it was just like some goofy temp job that I had right. in, in my early 20s. Well, so then biographically, this is, it's interesting because this, like, because that's where we kind of are in the biographical narrative in that, like, you're in temp jobs in your early 20s. And so what happened next? <laughs> so... I took a job with 
a woman my father knew in New Jersey. And and again, you know, I was like, oh, see a temp job that I have, see a boyfriend who just moved to Portland, Oregon. And my father said, if I moved there, he'd disown me. And I was like, well, I guess I don't like this boyfriend that much. Was it just distance or does he like hate the trailblazers? Did he hate Bill Walton or something? Uh, You know, I wish it were that simple. He just really didn't like this boyfriend. I mean, they would call uh, the, they called this boyfriend boring Ben and no, and he was vegan. And for some reason, my, my, my mother, again, hope she doesn't hear this. My mother would do things like put chicken stock in tomato sauce, just to mess with him. I mean, wow. she just, it was the most passive aggressive thing ever. And she would tell me this, like, I just put this, I'm like, mom, how can you do that? That's horrible. She just, they hated how much, how controlling the vegan was. It was so wretched. You're making it sound like this person is like patient zero for Portlandia. (laughs) I mean, was he in a way, I suppose? I mean, I don't know. I was young. He was young. He was in a band. He had nice curly hair and a nose ring. I mean, he was so he was so cute by like early 90s standards. Yeah. (laughs) And this is before Lifetime movies came out. So there weren't the tropes around. He's going to, you know, move you cross country and become, you know. Instead a ch- of a chicken ben. farmer. Yeah, or bad guy Ben or whatever. Yeah. Um, okay, so then you moved to New Jersey. Yeah, so I moved to New Jersey into this woman's house. And she was in – so I'm in my early 20s. She's in her mid-30s. And at this point, she's already made a, bun- a lot of money. And she was born in Taiwan and raised – her father had been – a big deal in the nationalist army um, and had fled Shanghai to Taiwan in 1949 and was in the government. And so she had this really unhappy childhood uh, because her father remarried after her mother died and the new mom didn't want anything to do with her. So they sent her to boarding school and she ended up in the U S going to Yale for business school and then started her first business in her early twenties and, you know, made, made lots and lots and lots of money. So I was working as her assistant and every once in a while she, she'd say like, I'm going to send you to China. I'm going to send you to Hong Kong. I'm going to send you to uh, Taiwan. And so I would get sent overseas and I had two business cards. One of them had my real name and the other one had a fake name because we were competing against our customers in the U S yeah. Oh, it was, it was also crazy. And then, and, and she would say that she was willing to do anything as long as it didn't directly harm human life. So I, yeah, (laughs) that, that directly is doing a lot of work right there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so the house was full of incredible Haitian art, like beautiful Haitian art. I don't know if you've ever seen Haitian art, but they have uh, like an interesting tradition and there's a lot more appreciation of it now. In those days, there were only a few people looking at Haitian art in the US. It was like a pity, but she had purchased the art collection or, or significant portion of an art collection owned by baby Doc Duvalier who had been dictator in Haiti. And after he fled with his art collection, he needed some money in a hurry. So for like, like pennies on the dollar, she had some of the national treasures of Haiti. And yeah, it was crazy. There was, there were pallets of it in the basement. And then apparently in cold storage, she had more. And then um, it, it was, it was so strange. Like the suburb of, um, I don't even, it wasn't even a suburb of, of New York. It was this town called Cranberry. She had this house. And uh, when I was there, she had her fortune teller come in. She wouldn't get out of bed each morning until her fortune had been read. And her fortune teller came in from Taiwan and to gamble. His whole thing, he was like an inveterate gambler. and it, But he was so really like bad the- at it. I know you went to college with Darren Aronofsky, but like, did you end up like paneling around with Wes Anderson at some point? And he's just been not me, but people your... I know. <laughs> Have these story like the the whole kind of gestalt that you're painting just seems very, um, yeah. It, it's like it's fascinating. But it's always it's also like just so um, stylistically interesting. If that's even the right word for it. Sure. I mean, I'm visualizing this house on a lot. Like she left me in her house. 
um, to go to China and I would be alone in this giant house and I would invite my friends over and cook dinner and take her car out. And she had at the time very fancy giant Mercedes and I would drive into New York city and I would like drag around in this car, you know, I was like, well, right. I'm going to see how many lights I can get through at once. Um, yeah, it was, it was really interesting. I, I learned, I learned a lot from her, not, not what she wanted me to learn. And I think for me, the last straw working for her is when through her private banker, uh, she was contacted by somebody in Nigeria, immensely corrupt, who was somehow related to their oil, uh, the main oil company there, who was trying to embezzle funds. And so she happily sent um, incredibly marked up invoices to them and then they would pay for them and then she would send money back. And it was just, you know, it was just laundering money. And I was just, I can't live with this. This is so freaking corrupt. Is this also patient zero for the Nigerian prince email? Yes, it really felt that way. Yeah. Um, and I spoke to this man on the phone, you know, it really, really felt that way. She trusted that this wasn't that. And I, I don't know how it netted out. Because she had been introduced by her private banker. So this person knew her private banker in Switzerland. And by the way, that private banker also is the one who arranged the the purchase of all of this Haitian art, which since I've been working with a, a, another uh, classmate of mine from college who has a real interest in Haiti and Haitian art. And he has tried to track this woman down to no avail. Like, I, I don't know where in the world she is. Wow. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe one of the listeners knows. Yeah, maybe. I'm not going to say your name though. <laughs> I feel like it's it's like uh, Candyman or something. You yeah, know? I just I will not say it in the mirror because she'll appear. It's horrifying. Um. So yeah, after that, um, I what did I do? Um. Oh. Anyway, had a, an inconsequential job and then decided enough is enough. And I went to culinary school and that's when my life changed. Culinary school changed my life. And we are. You went to culinary school because you were passionate about food. I was always into food. Yeah. Always like food. Food was always my thing. It was, it was my family's thing. I mean, there were stories uh, growing up uh, around food. My father was obsessed. Uh, One morning I wake up, I think it was a Saturday. He's like, Hey, you want to go to New York and go buy some, you know, bagels and knishes? Like, sure, dad. So jump into the car with my dad, drive four hours to New York, go to all his favorite food places, buy a whole bunch of food, bring it back home, (laughs) home, home by 9 PM for bed. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So my, my dad loved eating and food and you know, sort of instilled that piggish joy in us. And, um, (laughs) it's a great phrase. Yeah, no, it was, he was always a food adventurer. I missed out on some family vacations when I was in my teens. I decided I didn't want to go on family vacations anymore, which they were perfectly fine with. Um, so they would go away and I'd, I'd be, you know, the 16 year old alone. I was not that person who threw parties in the house. That wasn't my style. Mm. Um, okay. That's, that's helpful for me to, to, to figure this out. Okay. Yeah, no, I was not, I was not that kid. I had nothing to rebel against. My parents, you know, if I didn't come home one night, they'd just be really mad that I forgot to call and tell them where I was, Mm -hmm. you know, and it it was, it was a different time. They weren't worried about me. Um, There was really nothing to worry about. Um, You know, if I'd gone off for three weeks, you know, maybe they would have been more worried, but um, that never happened. Okay, so culinary school. Oh yeah, so so I had been I actually had applied to culinary school a few years earlier, but I wanted to see if these other jobs would work out first, so I deferred it. And when I finally kind of came to the end of my rope, I was like, "You know what? I'm going to culinary." So I went to New England Culinary Institute, which doesn't exist anymore. Um, it was bad legacy planning. Like the people who founded it just did a lousy job of, of planning. Um, essentially, it was, uh, they had a partnership, partnership ended, and then the partner who was running it died and there was just no one to keep it going. Uh, but it was this really, you know, it was a, a very different kind of school from the CIA, which is the most pre- prestigious school in the U.S. And what was different about it, it was really small and it was 
the, the, there were seven people in your group and you'd spend six months with them and it was completely hands-on. So you'd be making, you know, cafeteria, you'd work in the cafeteria and you'd feed people in, and this was in Vermont. And so you'd, you'd feed people in the state capital who worked for the state, or you would work at a college and you would be providing all of the food there, or you'd work in a bakery or you'd work in a restaurant, um, or you'd work in a hotel. And so everything was for these businesses that they were running. Um, and it was a huge change from what I had done and where I'd been living and the people I knew before. And it, it, it marked a huge change in me as well, because I hadn't realized how many sort of snotty things I needed to let go. Mm-hmm. And like what? Um, just sort of, you know, oh, I only want to associate with people from the same you know, background as me, you know, I, I I think I'd really been breathing some rarefied air and hadn't realized how rarefied it was until I got to culinary school. Um, you know, people didn't have the same backgrounds. They were all, everybody was diverse and different and had diverse learning styles. And that was new for me as well. Um, you know, sort of learning to appreciate intelligence in all of its forms, not just Mm -hmm. in, in, um, you know, oh, are you smart? Because I could see, you know, and you really see it in culinary school that people um, are intelligent in very, very different ways. And you meet them where they are. You don't have an expectation that they're going to meet you where you are. So I also learned to stop talking about college at that point. Because <laughs> you, know, you were what, like 26 or 27? Yeah, I was 26 and my classmates were 18 to 41. It was uh, a big range. The 18-year-olds were just coming out of technical school. 21-year-olds had pro- had been working as line cooks for years, you know, in their mind, you know. Well, that's also the point at which like your college stories are kind of all used up. Yeah, nobody cares. Nobody cares. And it just makes you like you're just a jerk. Um, yeah. So who cares? And so it was more about like, okay, how can I relate to people who aren't like me from my background you know, and, and get along and enjoy where I am and appreciate what they have to offer. Um, just how not to be a jerk. (laughs) So the first month I was in culinary school, every single day I came home and this is before we even were cooking. And this was like some, I, my first month was terrible. I had to do like the most boring classes. They were these sort of academic classes. This is before food science was a thing in culinary school. And so like, they were like, here's food history. And most kids are just snoozing. Every day I would come home from that class crying. What have I done? <laughs> Why have I done this? Um, Just because it was day. boring or, or like? I was frustrated. It was boring. I didn't have any friends. You know, it was just like, you know, we weren't doing anything. Um, Is there dorm? Like, are you living in an apartment? What's the? It's like a like a school dorm, um, except that they didn't have enough for everybody to live in dorms. So they had arranged off campus housing. So I had some roommates and, oh, my very first night in culinary school, I had to go to the hospital because I had an asthma attack, my first and only one in my life. Wow. Um, yeah. So, okay. so it was all just so strange and uh, a major change from everything that my life had been up to that point. Um, but I loved it. I mean, I really loved, once I got into it, I really really loved being around the food and uh, there was so much to learn and there was so much I didn't know. And um, uh, it was, it was a really good learning experience. It was a lot like boot camp, and that's actually where I met Alton Brown. Cause he was there at the same time I was. Um, so uh, I worked with his then wife um, in one of the offices there and uh, just, you know, did my thing. And then after I was done with my first term there, I went and did a year long internship in like three different restaurants in Boston. I went back to Boston and Cambridge and, Which ones? uh, so I worked, uh, none of them exist anymore. Um, I worked at a, so the first place I worked was a restaurant called Salamander and it was, what was it exactly? It was just like this guy's interpretation of kind of food he liked, fine dining, 250 covers a night on a Saturday um, in a weird part of Cambridge. But uh, the restaurant space had been um, 
home to a bunch of really exalted restaurants in Boston prior to this guy taking over the space. And then I will, Oh, go ahead. Oh, so it's interesting because like the, um, the thing that like you haven't said through this piece about culinary school is I I feel like there's this um, kind of general sense of like this, this baptism by fire and the like hugely um, demanding. And in many cases, like toxic strains of like working in a kitchen, like you say 250 covers a night. And it's like, I, I can feel like tired in my bones for an instant, just imagining that. But does this tie into like, just for you speaking of your brain chemistry, that it's like being actually on task on something like that was like, you were doing it standing on your head or is it just sort of like, you don't talk about that as much, but it was still there. What's the, what's the situation there? So for me, you know, the, the big thing in my world is mastery. You know, mastery is something I really enjoy, like like mastering physical skills. So mastering knife skills, mastering, you know, understanding of how things work in whichever department I was working in. But it was really hard because things were switched up constantly. Um, I, I'm not sure if I, I am answering your question right, but one of the things that was really challenging was dealing with the sadism of the guy that I worked for. And it wasn't the chef, it was the pastry chef. And he was just like, uh, he made everybody cry. I remember coming in once and finding uh, his baker just in tears. He, and he was pulling out trays of all the beautiful breads she had made and throwing them into the trash. And nope. Nope, not nope. This one's bad. This one's bad. And they were beautiful. They were such beautiful breads, and people would have enjoyed eating them. And nope, throwing them into the trash. And in my, one of my first uh, weeks there, he came up to my station, and there were two big boxes, two cases of cherries. And he handed me a cherry pitter, and he said, "Pit these cherries, as well as do all the stuff on your station." And it rendered my right wrist. Um, quite problematic and in pain for years after that. Like that, I I had so much weakness and problem and pain with my wrist. He gave me an instant uh, repetitive stress injury, which I had never had to have operated on. It was Mm -hmm. basically um, my ulna nerve that was messed up with it, but it was just like the casual cruelty of it. But on on the sort of like the angst, the angstometer, right. Um, That, like that's obviously you're you're powering through like a ton of like shit coming at you um but it was like obviously you you um that was not as uh maybe bewildering to you as with film the fact that it was like kind of you had to be the asshole type thing like I, that's kind of the through line that I'm 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 interested uh, in yeah i mean with with cooking so I wasn't knowledgeable enough to imagine myself as the asshole. I was still in this phase of learning. I'm like, okay, so I have to master this thing. So I didn't have space in my brain to even think about what was next because I was like, there's so much to learn. There's so much to learn. I got to get all this stuff in my head. I got to get all these experiences. So how I dealt with that is I had two jobs. Mm -hmm. So I'd have a day job uh, where I was cooking at like, uh, sort of like a diner or quick service place. And then I would go to my fancy fine dining job in the afternoon. And I did that uh, for the first six or eight months of that year uh, because I just needed to get as much experience as I possibly could uh, so that I could feel like I understood what I was dealing with better. Uh, so mm-hmm. I didn't have time to be angsty about what was next because I just, I was so clueless about what, what, what I was doing. Um, you know, I felt like I was just starting, starting that journey of understanding and that to even be given a modicum of respect, I had so much more to learn. And yeah, there were, I, I, yeah, I just wasn't even thinking about like, where does, where does this go next? I mean, in those days, again, in culinary school, there was only one route to go. Like you're going to work in restaurants. And I would think about, I'm like, oh, this really kind of sucks. (laughs) You know, while, while I'm really enjoying getting good at like all these different skills and learning how this works. And, you know, I, I eventually ended up working for a guy who now has three Michelin stars, um, as his pastry chef and doing other things that were, you know, fun and interesting. I, I just didn't feel like that was my home. Um, you know, I didn't 
in fantasize like after a while I stopped fantasizing about running a restaurant. I'm like, you know, this business is really hard and finding staff is really hard and, and having it be profitable is really hard. And I don't have this dream. Like there, this was also prior to food TV existing. And mm-hmm. uh, it was at the very beginning of people actually having PR agents um, in culinary. But, um, but so, this was, so this is actually a parallel to the moment of um, sort of, you know, releasing yourself from the quest of becoming a filmmaker yeah. <clears throat> that you're like, I do not have the monomaniacal drive to, you know, immerse my life in the, in the toxic soup that is, you know, trying to, trying to squeeze out restaurant life. Yeah. I, I, I didn't. Cause also like socially it was so hard. I'd get out of work. Um, you know, it took me around the country again because it was sort of fun to move around and go to different places and work for different chefs and do whatever. Um, but at night, you know, I was single and going out with people I worked with. It wasn't really for me. I was never really a drinker. I wasn't a partier. So it was just kind of boring. Um, I get when I had time off, nobody else had time off. I felt really alone and a little lonely in it. And I thought I have to figure out some other way to make this work for me. And that's when I discovered cheesemongering. Nice. Great transition. Let's yeah. get right into the cheesemongering. Yeah. I skipped a whole bunch of, of other interesting things, but you know what? We've been talking an hour and I'm still in my twenties. Well, I, you know, <laughs> Just to offer some more, I've already decided this is going to be a two-parter. Yeah, because so. everybody's going to be like, I'm dying to know what the second part is. I wonder what happened to her because she's got to be the most you know, fascinating person I've ever met. And so wise. That's um, sarcasm. It's, it's touching on a lot of like, um, I don't know, thematic pieces that run through kind of all the episodes of the pod that we've done so far. So Because I've done everything. <laughs> well, <laughs> I mean, well, it's, it's but it's. It's interesting specifically, um, uh, you know, you talk about kind of the social isolation of that lifestyle and, um, you know, I mean, there's a huge overlap between people who are either members of Guild Row or otherwise interested in in the venture. And, um, you know, one of the things that I think it's very easy when you're in, like I, I bartended for a long time. So there, you know, there wasn't, I wasn't even like a good bartender, but you know, <laughs> I, I did it, but it is extremely socially isolating. You know, yeah. it's like you're, you're getting out of work late and then you go out and you can only really hang out with other people who are starting their night at that hour. And then it's like, you necessarily sleep until like 11 yeah. or 12 or one or whatever. And then, you know, it's like, okay, you've got four hours before you go back into work. Um, and it becomes very easy to then seek kind of the stability of an opposite arrangement. Like I remember when I was like 22, I was, I was of a mind that like, I don't even care what the job is. I just want something that's like Monday through Friday, nine to five. Yep. Um, yep. And uh, I think it's very easy then for people to think that this is like part and parcel of any type of physical mastery to borrow a term from you that um, you're either arranging your life totally around it or you arrange your life in a way that like it's inaccessible to you. Um, and so I think it's, it's interesting. Actually, I think let's go, let's get to like the beginning of cheese migraine and then we'll pause there for part one of this, because um, talking about the kind of the marriage between the two of like how to, uh, you know, be at the mercy of a physical medium, so to speak, but also, you know, be a little bit more um, adaptive to the kind of person you are, I think is, is just like, it's, it's really at the heart of sort of like people, I don't know, being able to see themselves as like having options for exploring interests and being well-rounded, which is again, why I think that, um, you know, not to hijack or uh, exploit your biography, but it's, it's really interesting and, and germane, I think. No, no, I'm, I'm, glad for it. I mean, the thing I always tell people who are young and and I have, you know, as somebody who doesn't have kids, I socialize with people of all different ages, you know, I'm equal opportunity. Everybody's interesting to me in some way. Um, I have friends in their twenties and I always urge them to go out in the world and experience things and take risks because it's the best time of your life to do so. 
Um, you don't have a lot of commitments and you still are learning about yourself. And if you, if you are up to the task of challenging yourself and finding those things that make you tick, it's, it does work that you then won't have to do when you're older and look back on your life and say, why did I do that? Or why didn't I do something? You know, Mm -hmm. that, that, yeah, you, you either, it's you, you either pay up front for it for that type of experience or you finance it and you have to pay it later when it's a lot more costly. So much more costly later. So much more costly. So cheesemongering, I started doing it. Well, again, I'm, I'm the, a fan of having two full-time jobs. So in the morning I would full-time cheesemonger and in the afternoon I would full-time work the, at that point I was on like the fish station at the Four Seasons Hotel in Atlanta. So I'd, I'd uh, get my cheese on and within of the first couple weeks of my starting my job cheesemongering, the buyer quit. So I became the buyer and there were no other stores within like 250 miles or so. And so I had all this freedom. No, there was no one to control how I was purchasing except the national buyer. So that allowed me to develop this new set of skills, which was before the quote, you know, American cheese making revolution. And so I was there on the front lines as people started to um, develop new types of cheese and develop appreciation for cheese. And um, it was, you know, Atlanta at that point, uh, didn't have, you know, it was the very first whole foods that opened up in Atlanta. And that's where I worked. Uh, as the, the cheese monger slash cheese buyer. And, and within six months of doing it, uh, I was profiled in the Atlanta journal constitution as this cheese monger person. And I would go into stores and people would say like, Oh, there's the cheese lady. There's the cheese lady. So how, that how was, did, how did cheese monger become like the, the, the term of art? so to speak. It was always the term. I mean, it's like blank mongering, right? The fishmonger, the cheesemonger, the whatever, you know, it's, I, I, I don't know how it became, uh, the, the de facto awesome title. Um, you don't know what like the etymology of, of monger is. No, I mean, we could look it up on, you know, see what the OED has to say. I'm going to, I'm going to just put monger into Google. And yeah. I'll, it's probably, you know, like Middle English or something. Oh, right, because warmonger. I guess I didn't yeah. even think about that. Yep, the cheesemonger and the warmonger. I know who's going to win. Um, well, it depends on what they're doing. Yeah, I guess, if they're identifying cheeses. So this is interesting. It is from uh, Old English, man- Mangian, M-A-N-G-I-N, meaning to traffic. Interesting. The person yeah. traffics and cheese. Well, I definitely did. There was a period when if you asked me what was in my pocket, the answer was cheese. <laughs> Seriously? I'm dead serious about that. Wow. Yeah, I took my job really seriously. I, I, I remember getting out of work once, and this is later on. I worked for a distributor, and I got out of work, and I met my sister and my mom, and they both were just like, you smell terrible because – I worked in a giant cheese warehouse and uh, you smell it the m- when you walk in, you're like, oh, this is really rank. But then you get used to the smell. And by the end of the day, you have no idea how you smell to anybody except that they get away from you on the train. So, so when, so what's the lifestyle like of a cheesemonger? Oh, it's nine to five. Smell, it was like, like nine yeah. to freaking five. Uh, so after, after the, I pretty much decided once I began cheesemongering that I was done in the kitchen. I was like, oh, you know, kitchen's great, but the hours are exhausting. I, I had days that were 16 hours long for months at a time. And that was just with one job cooking. Um, so I was ready for something different. And cheesemongering uh, finally let me have a nine to five lifestyle, especially after I went to work for a distributor and I worked in inside sales, which, you know what, I was fine at, but not great at. I, I have no great passion for sales. Um, and then I applied to graduate school and then my, my adventure continues with wow. that. Yeah. So we're going to, we're going to stop right there at the fifty nine twenty one mark. Um, <laughs> but uh, this is, this is great. This is very exciting. Um, I have so many stories I didn't get to tell you. Well, that's why there's going to be a part two of, <laughs> of how many, I don't know. But um, 
Yeah, Lindsay, thank you for for sharing everything with us to this point. And uh, I don't know, the listeners should should stay tuned to to this bandwidth or frequency. Yes, and I encourage everybody to take up you know things that make you feel good that aren't drugs or alcohol. (laughs) (laughs) There there are such things. I know it's crazy to think about, but there are there's so many excellent things out there to throw yourself into and life turns out to be not quite as long as you think it is. Wow. Yeah. Well, on that, on that um, dark note. Yeah. On that foreboding <laughs> note, there's the cliffhanger. Um, all right. Yeah, and I'm going to tell you how I died in the next episode. <laughs> right. That's, that's how the, um, the uh, twilight series starts. So yeah. You know, super, we're, yeah right. <laughs> we're in good company. All right. Lindsay, all right, thanks a million. Good chatting with you. Yeah.